Welcome to the Unlimited Worth Podcast. We are normalizing the narrative for men who have healed from their childhood trauma by sharing stories of happiness, success, and love. I'm on a mission to encourage millions of men and the families who love them get the support and healing they need so they can realize their unlimited worth. Don Schwartz, thank you so much for joining us today. It's good to have you with us. It's great to be here. Don, you live in Whistler, BC with your wife, Lee, and your two daughters. You're a motivational speaker for the Burn Fund in Vancouver, BC, and you become active helping others recover from PTSD. And what I do understand beyond all your amazing accomplishments that we'll probably get into today, um, you've also written a book, Beating the Impossible, A Life of Comebacks, Extreme Sports, and PTSD. Clearly, you and I have had a connection um, and one of the most major connections, and I owe it to you a little bit because of your hyper-commitment to a process of treatment for trauma. But, you know, at our age, uh, one of our great things between you and I is we got right to it when we first met and got to meaningful conversations and we just skipped all the BS. <laughs> so I really appreciated that. So why don't we skip the BS and get right into it. You know, Don, you have a life of incredible stories as we've been discussing. Maybe you could share a little bit about your personal experience and story with trauma and where you think some of the more important aspects of that began. Through an interesting life, it's sometimes hard to pinpoint where all the traumas were because there was certainly more than one yeah. and certainly in different fields. But the biggest one that affected most of my life was in 1990, being in a helicopter crash that killed three of my friends and put me in the burn unit for a month in Calgary. And the subsequent four years of recovery after that, wearing a clear plastic face mask and going through burn rehab and scar recovery. And every day having a look in the mirror and see the results of the trauma, which remind you more and more and more because all my scars were visible which put my trauma front and center in life and turned me into one of the smallest minority groups on the planet of having very visible facial scars and discoloration. So that was the bulk of the trauma and then having to relive that over and over and over and over along with the discussions every day of, oh, what happened? And as I've discovered, retelling of the same event over and over ingrains the trauma more than anything else. So. It was a lot of interesting learning along the way of how that trauma became deeper embedded into the psyche and uh, everything I did, everything I lived through and all the defenses I built around myself to continue doing some of the things I did. And I would say I was luckiest having a great group of friends that wouldn't let me hide down the rabbit hole of despair. They forced me back into the life that I had previously been living and made me come front and center with all those traumas along the way, which at the same time probably helped me bury a lot of the uh, actual trauma mm. and figure out how to live with all the coping skills I developed. A couple of the most obvious ones would be how I talked about the event. And I built in the safety protection mode of when I was talking about it, I never talked about it from my perspective. So if somebody said, hey, what happened with the helicopter crash? I would say, oh, well, this occurred, then that occurred, and then this went on. And I would never describe it as in, well, I did this or I saw that. So I took myself out of the trauma. I had talked about it from a third person view, uh, uh, like an external camera watching the scene and describing it from outside of me. 
So I didn't have to relive the trauma. The body just built in this great protectionist mode without even really being aware of it or acknowledging it. It just occurred over time because it was way less traumatic. It was easier to go through and relive the event by describing it from an outside view because then I didn't have to relive it. And it built that protection in rapidly and stayed. And it wasn't until, you know, 25 years later of retelling that event to a psychologist. <laughs> Whoa, stop. We don't need to talk about this anymore. You don't need to relive this again. We see the problem. That probably being the, the biggest of the, the red flags that I should have seen better myself. But when you're coping with it and you're continuing on in your life, you don't believe there's a problem. Somebody else might see it. The specialist might see that you're doing that. But to myself, it's like, oh, no, I'm, I'm past this. My, my problems are behind me. I'm moving forward, carrying that baggage with me unknowingly for a very long time. Successful people, it leads to a great point. And this is one of the reasons I focus on men who've uh, been perceived or otherwise successful or leaders. You know, there's this feeling that somehow success, whatever, personally, professionally, is the validation that somehow you overcame that trauma. And we tend to convince ourselves that that's the case, that we've been a success story and we've overcome until we've actually had therapy, like actual professional help. We probably haven't and or we most well, we definitely haven't. You know, at what point in your life did you kind of have that revelation? You said 25 years was one of the points um, where you go, this is connected to whatever's going on now and what manifested in your life that got you to that moment to go, shit, <laughs> this is all connected and I, I got to deal with it. It was a point in time in life where, I don't know, called the midlife crisis, needed to do something more. Uh, we had a poor snow season at work and needed to get the rest of the staff working so I'd have them the next year. And I'd always wanted to learn to fly. I'd always wanted to be something with airplanes, helicopters. I decided at that point in time, I was going to go learn to fly helicopters. I didn't want to be 90 years old and wondering, what if, could I have, should I have, I wanted to go and say, yeah, helicopter pilot. So I went down and signed up for helicopter flight school and three days a week was traveling from Whistler to Vancouver and started to learn to fly. And it was going pretty well up to the point that got where I couldn't take off or land. I could hover, I could fly, I could go around and I could do engine failure practices. But that last eight inches to the ground wasn't occurring. The body was seizing, the palms are sweating, the rapid heart rate. And the instructor would have to take over every time and land the aircraft. Wow. And the same with taking off. It would be that initial pickup into a hover was just catastrophic. And then we'd take off and fly away and it'd be all fine. And it wasn't getting better. It was getting actually worse, if anything. I'd be walking out to the helicopter in the morning and I'd have to stop because sweaty palms, just 180 beats going on the heart. I'd have to slow myself down. And I realized this isn't normal. I shouldn't be this terrified of learning to fly. Mm. I've just spent the last 20 years in the heli ski industry in the helicopter (laughs) every day. And I'd never been terrified like I was learning to fly. A friend had gone through a system called the lens neurofeedback. And I didn't know that, but a friend showed up on time for the first time in 25 years and his vehicle was clean. And I said, okay, what has changed? Because this is not you. You've never been on time. Car's always been a mess. <laughs> and it's like, stop and tell me what you've done because the, something in your whole world is different. Oh, and he awesome. said he'd gone through this neurofeedback to get rid of his ADHD. And I said, well, tell me more about that. And I thought, 
this sounds like something that would fix my fear of the flying and the, obviously the embedded PTSD I had. So I went and chatted with that psychologist in uh, Whistler, Stephen Milstein. Three sessions of doing the lens neurofeedback later, I went back to the flight school and I felt like Luke Skywalker. Walked down, no sweaty palms, no rapid heart rate. Got in the helicopter, looked at the instructor and said, all right, buddy, today's different. Let's go. Picked up into a perfect hover, turned around, flew away. And he says, okay, just, just land down over here. Land down perfectly. I go, oh, what's up? He says, I don't know what you've been doing, but we got to talk about this later because you can actually fly now. And the that car was is the clean. only difference. You're on time. The and car, car is clean. <laughs> and then I realized that all of those traumatic triggers in the body that were unwanted and unneeded and happening were no longer happening. And that was after three sessions and I went and finished a batch more and did some more work with them. But that was a big eye-opening moment. And that was that big trigger. I wanted to learn to fly so badly that I had to do whatever I could do to get rid of what was stopping me. And then it made me realize, oh my God, how long have I been living with this and covering it up and hiding it? You know, I'd been told within the first year or so that, oh yeah, you've got PTSD. And it's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. I'm 20 years old. I don't have PTSD. It's just that's a weakness. I'm not weak. <laughs> and I want B I want B E E R. <laughs> yeah. I want to go to exactly. the bar. I want to have a beer. I want to move on. That was the big triggering point. I've talked to a lot of people since and everybody'll get eventually get to a point, I hope, where they want to recover more than anything else. And sometimes it's just admitting this is what I have. I now understand what I have. I know what I have. Because I hid it so well and covered it up. I had believed that I didn't have the problem anymore until it really, really stuck its ugly head out and showed me that uh, you're not going to learn to fly ever until you get rid of this. That's an interesting point. I had a great family life growing up. I had some incredible career trajectories on a repeated mm -hmm. basis from my 20s to late 40s. Um, one of the things my wife said when we were going through this journey was, you know, I knew about your trauma from basically the time we met, but I never thought it was a problem. And it was because I seemed pretty successful, pretty okay. And part of it was I had convinced myself of that. And the other is we just didn't know that there might be a connection. That whole, you know, it happened, sure, but it didn't mean much. It was, I'm, I'm moved on. And no one from the outside looking in was making that connection. Of course, they didn't know. But in your case, people knew. And you had what people call growth through trauma. Because, I mean, your resume, if you will, your repertoire in some people's eyes, they would perceive it as just an absolute shining example of bravery and courage and fortitude. You know, the list is many. <laughs> the death race. I, I often the, think, well, yeah, the death races and the, the extreme uh, adventure racing and some of that, I think, well, especially when you look back on it, you go, yeah, of course you did. That was the coping mechanism of dealing with the trauma. It was a way out. It was a way I might even describe of self-infliction of the the pain of some of those events as my coping mechanism. And I look back on some of those events and I think, I don't know if I could have succeeded the way I did without the PTSD. So I don't, I don't even know if I would have gotten into those 65-hour grueling death races had I not had the PTSD as my driving motivation hidden in the background. 
it's a really weird connection that I say some of my success is because of the PTSD. And I may not have done those things without it. Like my wife would say, well, that probably would have been good because those races beat the crap out of you. <laughs> no sane person would do it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very true. Yeah. You know, I know that you are hyper-focused as well on what you bring into your body for the most part in terms of nutrition. I have to consider that when we, we look at our physiology, that pursuit with the intensity of which you did it, Tough Mud or Death Race, like those incredible extreme sports, your body's desire for the dopamine for the hormones yep. probably wasn't that different in terms of the numbing effect or the dissociating effect of an addict. You just happened to pick things that would be reasonably good to be good at versus, you know, being an excellent, you know, world champion drinker. And, and so yep. maybe it took a form of addiction or replaced that um, in maybe a slightly healthier way. Although I know there are moments you almost felt like they were going to kill you what you were doing. You know, maybe, what do you think about that concept? Absolutely. Uh, w without a doubt, I chose a different addiction. And it was probably based more upon the friends and family that I had around me, that going down a drug and alcohol doorway or path, the friends in my society wouldn't have allowed that. Right. They, they, somebody would have hopefully stepped in and stopped me. And it was also because at about those times, I'd seen other people throw away incredible athletic careers through drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. People that should have been world champions just smoked themselves right out of competition. That just wasn't wasn't a direction that my brain was going down. Yeah, choosing the other addiction of health and fitness was probably in the long run a better thing for me. But yeah, the, the description of I just chose a different addiction is is very accurate. I describe often the mechanism of trauma wherever it is. It's really designed to protect the life of the person or, and if we think of it more biologically, the organism, yep. so that the organism can survive and procreate and nurture the next generation so they procreate and so on. And those addictions are part of that process of trying to align what we're doing with maybe that possibility. Yeah. It just happens that dopamine doesn't know whether it's booze, drugs, or the death race. So let, let's step away from that for a second, Don, and because I think it's really critical. So for you, you made the connection that, boy, that traumatic event absolutely was a reason for stuff in your life. And you were able to yep. make the connection and get some therapy and treatment. And, you know, no short of what I would probably guess is miraculous to you. And I know my experience with treatment was miraculous, it felt like. Explain a little bit more about the treatment that you went through with Steve. Yeah, it's called the lens neurofeedback, low energy neurostimulation. The best understanding that I can have is that the trauma has created a shortcut in our brain. We've developed new pathways to deal with it, and we've created more shortcuts to go around where the trauma is. So now we've reprogrammed the electrical activity in our brain, and it's no longer balanced side to side. So we have the left and right hemisphere of our brain, and when the electrical activity is even, our brain functions normally, and we don't have those shortcuts. But with the trauma, we've built shortcuts, and then the electrical activity in certain areas of the brain are off kilter. One is very different than the other side, and that's where the shortcuts are being reprogrammed. So the neurofeedback is analyzing. You've got a whole batch of electrodes on your head, and you don't have to do anything. You don't talk about the event. You don't have to relive it. You just sit there, 
the computer analyzes it all and says, okay, here's where the imbalances are. And the resetting that it does is you're, you're listening to, um, uh, you got some headphones in and you can have your eyes closed, whatever you're doing. But as it's analyzing where the electrical activity is taking a shortcut, mm -hmm. it initiates a little static in your ears. And it's though as your brain says, oh, I don't know what to do with this. It's like turning your computer off and on. You've reset the software back to where it's supposed to be. And then it has rebalanced the electrical activity and the brain has reset itself. Hmm. So it's not a system trying to force your brain into what somebody else thinks is the right pattern. It's letting your brain reset to where it was before on its own. So it's taking you where you should be and just letting your brain go, oh my God, I don't know what to do with the static at this point in time. Reset, come back in, and that shortcutted pathway is gone. You don't have to talk about it. You don't have to relive it. It's over several sessions to start rebalancing that electrical activity. So that is the adverse response to the trauma, mm. is the mm. shortcuts, the sweaty palms, the seizing of the upper body. All of those things is your adverse response to, well, for me, the helicopter crash right, coming right. close to the ground. So as soon as I got rid of the brain's shortcuts for all those spots, I went back to flying and all the adverse reaction was gone. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to do the yoga breathing. I didn't have to try to get into some Zen state to slow myself down because it had never gone to the adverse response because those electrical pathways were back to where they should be. May I ask you also, was there a component of EMDR? Well yeah, we did. We did that at the end. I was more blown away what came out of that because part of that is mentally reliving the event. That was astonishing what came out of the body. And that's when you realize 25 years of holding on to that exploded out. Mm. And that was pretty profound, having that release out of the body. That really felt like the thousand pound gorilla was gone. Yeah. And it also changed, it changed my memory of how the accident was. Before that, my memory was the third person view. And after going through a couple sessions, the EMDR, the question was, how do you picture everything now? And I said, now the memory is my eyeballs through my own eyes with no traumatic response. All of those self ingrained defense techniques weren't needed because the event had been processed and it was no longer traumatic to me. Right. My brain had finally accepted that that's what had happened. Yeah, that was, that was a profound, it's like a come to Jesus moment for wow, it's gone. The trauma's gone. The, that baggage I've been hanging on to for 20 years is finally dumped. And it, the sense of physical relief was incredible. The most important book I've ever written is now available on Amazon. Unlimited Worth, Lessons of Healing from Childhood Trauma, Finding Happiness, Love, and Success for Male Leaders. Men suffer silently with hidden secrets of childhood trauma. I urge readers to break your silence, to seek professional help, resolve your trauma, heal your pain, and realize your unlimited worth. You'll bear witness to the two events that limited my potential and define my life. That was the day suicide became a viable option and the sexual abuse 40 years earlier that eroded my self-worth and limited my life until treatment. You see, once the secret is revealed and treatment has been experienced, the universe opens up. So buy your copy today, Unlimited Worth, at Amazon.ca.uk and .com. Don, you provided an acknowledgement in your book for some work we did together early on in your book writing process. But I want to acknowledge you because your the comments that you just shared about EMDR and the reality is, is I forgot completely about the other stuff. Yeah. 
but the effectiveness in treatment for your anxiety related to the landing of a helicopter, which is kind of important, was precisely the treatment I saw based on your, because of the recency of the conversations we had had, as I was coming out of a 10-day suicidal contemplation period of my life and looking to heal, I sought EMDR and all I could think of was Don said EMDR is amazing and I just found a fellow in Vancouver who's brilliant at it and it was no nothing short of a miracle. And I wanted to thank you publicly um, that it was your, it was how adamant you were about how life-changing it was from your perspective and our relationship at that point that inspired me. So I wanted to just acknowledge that and I really appreciate it. I'm glad. I'm glad you were at a point where you were open to accepting that there's something that can help. And I, and I think that is the biggest part is the person has to be willing to go into that believing that, that this is worth a try. And I think a lot of us get stuck in the point where, you know, somebody told me about that 10 years earlier. I don't think I would have gone in for it. So, so let's, I, let's, I didn't think I had the problem. Let's go there because this is really key. First of all, uh, a wise man told me, I always refer it to healing. And then he says, healing leaves yep. scars. And of course, who, who would know and understand that better, right? Healing leaves <laughs> scars. And what he said, is it more about being whole? And I say, absolutely, it's about being whole. And it's hard to say my holing because <laughs> it's just an awkward thing. To, <laughs> have you hold lately? I mean, I don't know if that's a real public. Um, <laughs> people will look at that strange if you I tell know. them you did that. Your context is everything. But in talking about that, and you just reflected on it, and this is one of the most important elements of what I'm doing with unlimited worth, how do we bring it in? I just wonder, I reflect on how powerful that would have been for me in my life. Cause I was still that guy, like you did the emotional time travel, like the person you were before the trauma, there's so many elements of that, that because you were such a great guy with so many opportunities in the world going for you. And then trauma yeah. made an effect. You would have been just as great or better, you know, in, in certain ways. Like there's, you'd think of those things. And you wonder, what if in a level-headed way, I was able to say, you know, I've got this huge trauma effect going on. No idea how it's working on me because I feel normal today. I feel average today, like typical, but maybe no different than, you know, I got a few extra pounds and I can't quite walk up those stairs. I probably should go and get a little bit of nutrition and fitness in my life that why don't we and how do we normalize the conversation to get people to go, I feel pretty good, but I know that there's this big event that happened to me and um, I have to acknowledge that if I don't do that, instead of having a heart attack because I'm not eating right or, you know, whatever, I'm going to have, I'm going to kill myself, someone's going to kill me or I'm going to suffer a mental crisis at some point <laughs> if I don't fix this. And so why don't, why can't we get to, and, and men in particular, why can't oh. we get to that conversation when it's, when just everything's going along normal? Why can't we just make that a normalized narrative? There's a couple pieces to that. There's a couple pieces to that. Men have always been historically, especially for those of us that are older, maybe easier now for somebody coming through generation if you're 10 years old now, different. But for us, when we were young, if somebody had a problem, we were told to get over it. A mental problem was a horrible weakness. It wasn't considered an injury. It was considered sickness, weakness illness. There's a problem with you. You're going to need drug therapy. You're going to have to go into electroshock. You need to be into a home. It wasn't treated as an injury. And 
to me, that's a, any kind of profound change in the world takes a minimum of 20 years. Mm. And I think we're into about year five of it, of that 20 year change to get society to accept that trauma, traumatic injury, mental, whatever, it can even be from a concussion is an injury and you need to heal from it. Treating it with the drugs, being told to get over it, is the same mentality as having your femur sticking out of your leg yeah. and you show up at the doctor and they go, oh, that's too bad, that, that must really hurt. Tell you what, here's some painkillers. We're going to put a Band-Aid on that and we're going to send you to therapy to learn how to live with the pain and we're going to teach you how to limp, but we're not actually going to fix the bone sticking out. <laughs> oh my God, that's crazy. And while like that's a, that's a 20 year change to get that to happen. So we're starting down that road. It's getting better. The, the reason that so many people get stuck with that for so long, especially men, is that's always been considered weakness and we mm. shouldn't show that level of weakness because society looked at it as uh, a downfall versus you know a guy walking around with a sling on his arm it's like hey, hey way to go buddy you got a broken arm yeah and then they'll tell you Whereas, everything they'll recite every incident how it happened how the pain was how it almost killed him yeah. <laughs> and there's no trauma because it's just a different full mindset of how that injury came about trauma to every person is completely different What's traumatic to you may not be to me. We could both see the same event. It could be a car crash and we're not affected at all. But the guy in the street corner on the other side that had nothing to do with it at all had the most trauma because they couldn't get in to help. So you don't, you don't get to choose what the trauma is. So it may be what to another person is very mundane. It's like, oh, big deal. Okay, your, your parent passed away. So everyone else hopefully gets to experience that. Pretty awful the other way around. And to one person that's very traumatic and to everybody else it's like, no big deal. It was... We don't understand why it's traumatic to that person. That is also that cultural shift that has to go on that takes the 20 years where we go, all right, you went through an event and yeah, it's traumatic to you. Of course it is. I have no idea, but you say it is, therefore it must be. And getting the medical system to believe that as well and the treatment has to change. And right now that's, like I said, it's the, we're in the five year, the 20 year change because things for like the, the neurofeedback the guys that do it don't have it written down in a textbook. Here's 100% why it works. Right. They're the ones saying, we do this. We know it works. We got a pretty darn good idea, but we don't know enough about the brain yet to say definitively, here's exactly why it works. So they can't put it in a medical textbook. So a lot of doctors go, oh, I can't prescribe that. I've never heard about that. Right. You got to find that doctor that says, well, nothing else is working. So this is the only thing left. So we got to give it a try. Well, and one of the We're things that my my uh, clinician, you know, what he espouses, and I guess uh, probably what yours as well, is this sense that somehow um, therapy needs to be every week for years on end, and that somehow that this is different than other injuries in so many ways, and yet some of the treatments that are available, some of the processes um, seem to be effective in ways that, you know, shorten the span to heal. Now, you touched on it earlier about the fact that it was so different, right? And, and I had that experience too. The moment, there was a moment in time where you just were, everything was disconnected. The subconscious patterns that were in place that were like governing your life, whether you liked it or not, and all those emotions that were connected to it and how they rise up once in a while and be part of this, and they steer you in whatever direction, the anxiety, the fear, whatever, suddenly we're disconnected. I view that as that's what people who haven't been traumatized go through or that's what people who are now whole or healed go through. Like now they're disconnected and so you can function and you can deal with those emotions and so that's a lifelong thing is you have to figure out how, how do we deal with emotions in a normal environment. But when we look back at 
thinking about how do we change the narrative, you're talking about a generational shift. And one of the ways to accelerate a generational shift is to have the generation that came before, which essentially will be us, right? Don, like we're in the Gen X and we're that generation that is taking the full resistance of stigma out there on mental illness and blending it with as best we could <laughs> and what we knew and, and now revelations about it. And there's a generation coming up that understands that it's something that needs to be discussed but doesn't understand how it's fixed and how it manifests because they haven't lived through it, right? That's that generation. They haven't lived through what we've lived through going, how, oh, wow, that affected our lives. Right. Because they haven't lived the lives. So how do we bring the two ends together? You know, how do we do we shift that culture? Or we just allow it to evolve. It comes from people like you and me. We've been through it. We've lived it. Our job's to share it right. and to teach the, the younger crew, the younger kids, everybody coming through that those things are OK, that it was OK to have been traumatized from an event. It affected us. So I can't change that. It's OK. The same as breaking your legs. OK. You're not deemed a lesser human because your bone broke. In a lot of cases, you're elevated as, oh, yeah, way to go. You've been, you did something, your leg broke. Oh, cool, cast. Only out here in, <laughs> in our oh, resort area. <laughs> very true. The, People are very much a bad this, this is very You don't have specific. enough stars on your wall for those things. <laughs> <laughs> so it's getting the people that have been through it to accept that. It, I look at my job as to, Go and get everybody that's been through traumas and help them, get them treatment, sometimes convince them, hey, I can now see that you've had trauma. You don't believe it yet. We'll get you there. Trust me. It's okay. You can talk about it. You can go out and admit. You can go into a podcast and say, I was horribly traumatized from this event. Yeah. I lived with the damn thing for 25 years and I'm hoping some of you won't. I'm hoping you'll, you'll see the light earlier. You won't accept 20 years of talk therapy to try to talk through it and come up with ways to manage the anxieties and the stress. It's the, you need to go get help and get rid of that so you don't manage it so that it's gone right. and you can move your life forward. And I think more people nowadays are coming, they're coming up through a, a life where it's acceptable to be that. It's acceptable to be different. And everybody's more accepting of that than our generation was. We didn't look a lot upon people that were different very well. It seems to be now, you know, younger kids look at me with scars and go, it's like, yeah, whatever. You guys got scars. Whereas 20 years ago, it was, oh my God, that guy's got scars. <laughs> and and it's, it's changing, but it takes the, the people that have been through it, open up, share, and then want to go and help the, the, the future generation so they don't have to deal with what we did. You don't want anybody to have to go through what we did, ever. This is a good place to kind of wrap it because I, I think that there's some great wisdom in maybe how you can pull this together. And that is your trauma was the crash. It was happening. Whether, whether you liked yeah. it or not, it was happening. And there's often this feeling that if we could just stop people from abusing kids or, you know, accidents like from happening, trauma will happen from the time you're in the womb yep. to the time you're 20 or 22, whatever. The key is, is how do we deal with it? How do we connect it? how we understand how effective that is for the rest of our lives. You know, just like you said, if you broke your femur and you never had it treated, you're walking with a limp the yeah. rest of your lives. It's kind of obvious, right? So Don, I, um, I want to thank you for taking the initiative to use this as a platform, create a platform to share this information with the masses, whoever will listen, really. 
and tell us all a little bit about what you're up to, maybe a little bit about where the book is, what the book's doing for you or where you, where you hope to be and how people might be able to find you. Well, the uh, easiest way to find me is through my website, donschwartz.ca or beatingtheimpossible.com. That is the book that I uh, have just had published and it's out for sale through Friesen Press or any good bookstore in the world can get it in for you. And it is a great explanation of and some nice insight into uh, the life that I went through as the extreme athlete, uh, some of the successes that I went, some of the downfalls, and what I went through to fix the PTSD so that I could learn to fly. And I'm hoping it's a great book that you can read it as a hilarious adventure book of some dummy out there in the, the world of extreme sports and having some great success. You can read it as a, a very motivational book of, wow, has this person been through a lot of crap and they're still here and laughing. And you can read it as a great way to go, hey, it's okay to have PTSD and wow, is that a nice nice thing when it's gone and out of the way. I look at my job now is to get this out there in the hands of everybody that will find some benefit from reading it, either good adventure, good story, motivation, or oh, wow, now I understand what I have and I should be getting some help because this person did and what a change. So that's a big part for me. I'm hoping to get out there and talk to as many people as I can. I thank guys like you for creating opportunities like this because this is how we get that word out, make that change in under the 20 years. And if we can all help one person, that's awesome. It's one less person that has to go through what we did. I wholeheartedly agree, Don. Uh, and I would definitely tacitly endorse the book uh, for anyone who wants a good story, a moment of I'm not worthy, but at the same time, I'm now inspired to live my life beyond what I'm doing today because Don sets the bar in incredible places. But I think ultimately, Don, your message and connecting uh, trauma that uh, until you couldn't park a helicopter <laughs> and you dealt with it in a way that it was effective is probably the most powerful among all of your achievements. Anyone who wants to spend any time with Don is going to get, you're never going to feel like there's a shortage of stories or they're ever done. So Don, I want to thank you so much for being a part of the Unlimited Worth podcast, spending time with me again today. I always enjoy our exchanges and I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you. Greatly appreciate you having me on here. And uh, I'm very happy that our, uh, our fellow friend Christian introduced us. You are a phenomenal motivating drive for me to get the first words down on the paper and get going. Not sure I would be here without that. So thank you. We're sharing the Unlimited Worth Project podcast, book, and my speaking engagements worldwide so we can normalize the narrative and encourage conversations between men who have healed and men who need to, while reducing the drama and sensationalism in the media and seek the treatment and support they need to heal. They are worthy of love and success. When they know this, they can realize their unlimited worth. All guests appearing on the podcast have done so voluntarily. We do not require a fee from our guests. They have had the chance to express any concerns they might have and consented to their voice, image, name, and likeness in video or audio format to be used by Mike and the Unlimited Worth Project. This podcast has been edited for content and clarity prior to publication. The podcast content and likenesses are owned by Mike Skripnik Fit Family Enterprises, Inc. and the Unlimited Worth Project and our producer, Anibus Media. Redistribution without prior written consent is prohibited. The information, suggestions, and ideas of the podcaster or any other non-accredited, unqualified guests are exactly that, opinions.
and do not constitute professional advice, counsel, or prescriptive recommendations for our listening audience. If you need help, seek professional help and do it today.